Hey friends, welcome back to Real Talk with Rachel. I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert, and I'm so grateful and honored that you've chosen to tune in today. This show is a safe place you can come to hear relevant, engaging, and authentic topics to help you get real, live free, and pursue those God-given dreams. Hey, I hope you've had a chance to listen to last week's interview with Lisa Bevere because, as I promised, I have her son Addison on the show today. This seemed like the perfect time to do a mother-son combo the week of Mother's Day. The Bible refers to all who believe in Jesus Christ as saints, yet Christians as a culture don't identify with that term. Addison Bevere, he's the CEO of Messenger International and the son of John and Lisa Bevere, believes the arcane term is the mysterious key to unlocking the life of meaning and purpose many Christians crave. In his new book, Saints, Becoming More Than Christians, Bevere uses scripture and personal stories to unpack what it means to be a saint, and he invites readers into the wonder of following Jesus as God intends. You're going to be able to see this same fire that Lisa and John Bevere bring in this interview with Addison. Let's jump into that conversation that I had with Addison all about what it really means to be a saint. Well, hello, Addison, and welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you here. Thanks, Rachel. So good to be here. Yeah. So I read your beautiful professional bio in the introduction of this show. And one thing I like to ask my guests is, what's something random about you that I would not have read in your bio? Something random about me. Wow. Okay. I one time wrote my wife a letter for 275 days straight. Wow. Was yeah. that before so, before you guys got married or when you once you were married? It was it was when we were dating. She was in this Bible school and they the school had this this um, policy that the students weren't allowed to date during their first year. And it was their first year. And because we had and uh, soul ties, what they called it. We weren't allowed to have any communication whatsoever. I couldn't even send her letters. So I wrote them, but I couldn't send them. We couldn't do Facebook messaging. I mean, nothing. And then after she graduated from that first year, and it was 275 days, um, I gave her all the letters and asked her to marry me a month after that. Oh, my goodness. That's so cool. So all the singles and guys listening here, take some notes. Take some, <laughs> take some notes. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so you recently wrote a book, and is this your first book to write? It is. I've helped write a couple books in the past, but this was the first book that I wrote as my own book. Okay, what books have you helped write in the past? I helped, so th- this one's kind of funny. So my parents, John and Lisa Bevere, they did a book on marriage. I helped write that book. So I actually ghost wrote that book for them. So that was really interesting, especially like doing the the chapter on intimacy. It was really interesting trying to get into my parents' psyches and writing on their behalf. Oh, that's awesome. Did you write that when <laughs> you were married? Yeah, I've been I've been married for a few years. But what I did is I took their content. Uh-huh. So they they've been married for almost 40 years now. I took I took their content and I put it in book form. Yeah. So it, it was it was a fun project. I actually only had five weeks to do that. So I spent pretty much most of the day every day writing that book. And then I helped my dad write a book called The Holy Spirit and Introduction. Ooh, and, sounds really good. And so Yeah. Yeah. So those are those are two projects that I worked on with them prior to writing Saints. But there's something that my dad says and and I love this. He says that his name is on the book because he was the first one to get to read it. And I love that idea. Like anything worthwhile, anything meaningful that we contribute in this lifetime, it's 
it must be breathed by the Spirit of God. And so when it comes time to penning, penning a work, I believe if it's going to be meaningful, if it's going to create life change, the author has to approach it from that place of humility. Yeah, I so agree with that because I'm in the process of working on my first book right now. And when this whole thing started to unfold, I I had that exact conversation with God. I was like, God, I don't want anything to do with writing a book if it's not if it's not anointed, you know, because otherwise it's just empty yes. words. And and there's we've got other things we could spend time on than writing empty flesh led words for sure. So that's that's, that's really right. cool. That's really cool. So you know, oftentimes on Instagram, before I interview my guest, I will ask my people, "Hey, are there any questions you want me to ask?" And usually I keep the questions for the end. But with you, I want ask now, since you mentioned that your parents are John and Lisa Bevere, somebody asked how you, you know, growing up, you know, in their household, how you came to find your own faith, you know, not just writing on mom and dad's tales of faith and how it became real to you. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it honestly, it's a question I get a ton. <laughs> one of my, one of the things my parents did so well is they, they encouraged us to pursue God in our own way. So they modeled something so beautiful, but we never felt this pressure that we had to follow in their footsteps. That we had to do what they they do the way they do it. And there's there's four of us boys, so I'm the oldest of four boys, and we were all encouraged to discover what it means to pursue God's plan for our lives. And and my parents again, like they modeled this beautiful picture of ministry, but I didn't want anything to do with ministry. In, in, in a vocational sense, like I, I wanted to do something different. I didn't like being compared to my parents. I didn't like people who didn't know me coming up to me and being like, you're going to write books like your dad or you're going to speak like your mom. I'd be like, you don't even know me. I wouldn't say this, but I would thank it. Like, you don't even know me. And you're and you're saying these things. So there was a season of my life where where I, I did go a different direction as far as my vocational pursuits. And then when I was in my mid 20s, like God made it very clear to me. Is like, look, I have called you to be a part of this legacy. I've called you to contribute in this capacity. You need to stop running from this. You need to embrace it. And and my parents did such a great job of giving me the space to come to that place. And for us as a family, we know that God has called our family to something that's generational. And, but that's something that all of us, that's a revelation that all of us had to come to individually. And because we all came to that individually, it's so much more powerful for all of us collectively to embrace and, and pursue what that means. Yeah, I can relate to everything you just said. I'm a pastor's kid, and I felt the same way for the longest time. I was like, I don't want nothing to do with ministry. And, it, and it, I think that, I mean, you can tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like almost all pastor's kids are kids who are in ministry uh, families have this little wrestling that they do because we do see but the behind the scenes and what I don't think people always understand about ministry is it is a it's quite a responsibility to carry you know on on, on many levels and so I think that wrestling through for myself anyways was healthy because it made me do exactly like what you just mentioned. I heard God tell me I'm supposed to do this, not, oh, because your mom and dad were in ministry, you also should do it. You know, that those are two completely different things and the grace isn't there to carry that responsibility because I consider it a high honor that God would even consider using me at all, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so true. And it's one of those things too. At the end of our lives, like we're going to look back and we're the ones who are going to give an account for the decisions that we made and, and the past that we pursued. Not our parents, 
not our friends, not our coworkers, not our family. We will. And so it's really important for us to wrestle with God, to wrestle with these these big questions of purpose and meaning and calling. Like that's that's an important part of the discovery process. And I think a lot of people who grow up in quote unquote ministry homes, whether that's pa- uh, like homes of a pastor or homes of someone who who's who's in ministry in the way that my parents were, where they're traveling and speaking, they don't feel safe to ask many of those questions. And it does cause a lot of PKs to go sideways. I joke about it. I say PKs are either some of the best people that you meet or they're some of the worst people that you meet. There's there's hardly any PKs that fall in the middle of the spectrum. And I do think that's that's a part of the reason why that's the case, because the struggle and the challenge of growing up in that dynamic. Yeah, I agree. And that's I, I, that's why I love to have such open conversations with, with our kids and letting them know it's okay to share things. And, and I've even had other PKs, adults, now their adults have kind of looked at me and gone, where, how did you come back around? Like, how did you come back full circle? And I always just, it's back to that real authentic relationship with God yourself will always help us to see things the way that he does and, and rise up to that calling. So let's talk now. We haven't even gotten into your book. This, your book is called Saints. Can you tell us about that, the heart behind it and just, yeah, whatever you want to share about the book. And then I'll ask you some questions about it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the title saints and the subtitle is becoming more than Christians. And when, when you hear that word saint, most likely you're, you're probably like how I was before I, I ventured into this discovery process of like saint, that's anyone but me. That's a, that's stained glass window. That's someone with a halo on their head. That's someone who lived a long time ago and died and was canonized by the, the institutional ch- church. But I discovered, and it was it was a pretty chance discovery. I was reading I was reading this book, and it wasn't about saints, but I was reading this book. I was about halfway through it, and the author makes a mention of a saint, and he and he describes saints as people who practice and participate in the mystery of the final day. And I was like, what? People who practice and participate in the mystery of the final day? Like, man, I need to I need to dive into that. I need to look into it. Like, what does that mean to practice and participate in the mystery of the final day? And to be honest with you, Rachel, if I can be really honest, I I haven't liked calling myself a Christian for probably 20 years. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's not it's not that I'm ashamed of Jesus. It's not that I'm ashamed of the Word of God. I believe that Jesus is the one person who got this whole humanity thing right. I believe that we are invited to follow in His footsteps and learn what it is to, to lay down our lives, to truly be human, to become a part of a mission that's so much greater than our individual selves. Like, I love that. What I don't like is I don't like the stereotypes, the stigmas, the labels that have attached themselves to this idea of being a cultural Christian. And and so when, when I saw this idea of saint, I was like, hmm, that's different. I want to look into it. And as I did the deep dive, I discovered that if you look at the New Testament, the word Christian is used only three times all throughout the New Testament. But the word saint is used over 60 times. It was the identifier of the early church. And when you think about Paul's letters, when he would write to these to these new churches, he would say to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Rome. So he wasn't writing just this small group of people. He wasn't writing to, to people who would one day be saints. He was calling them saints in this present moment. And if you look at what the early church was doing, they were turning the world upside down. They were deconstructing the barriers between the, the secular and the sacred. They were reconciling groups of people that quote unquote didn't belong together. It was a movement and it was a movement that required the world to take notice of it. 
And I feel like this idea of Christianity that we have today is very individualistic and it's very small. Mm. Like when, when I say individualistic, when I hear people talk about their Christianity, it's normally like, this is my faith. It's my salvation. It's my ticket into heaven. It's my condemnation free living now. And it's very self-centered. Whereas to be a saint is to discover that we're a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. After all, in the Lord's Prayer, it's our Father who is in heaven, not my Father who is in heaven. And so this, this idea of becoming a saint is it's the idea of plunging into God's original design for humanity. It's not waiting one day to wake up to the reality and the beauty and mystery of life. It's waking up now. So saints are people who wake up in this moment. They're not people of the past. They're people of the present. And I would love to see the church reclaim what it means to be saints. Woo! Preach. We're going to church this morning. This is awesome. I, I will tell you, your book, when I first got it in the mail, and then every time I walk by it, I have it sitting on a little stand wherever I sit to read, it actually awakens my spirit just seeing the word saints, because this might be the PK in me. When I see the word <laughs> saints, I th- sing that song in my head. Oh, when the saints come marching in, like every time. Yeah. But but I know that's kind of corny, but it seriously reminds me that it is so much more than just this individual thing, you know, of just being like you mentioned, just individually me. I'm a Christian. OK, good. Done. What You know, yay, I'm going to heaven. All about, you know, and me, myself and I. Whereas saints, I get an image of like an army, you know, I'm like, I, yeah. like, and we're all like geared up, like, let's do this. Yeah. It just makes me just even like, even before I open your book, I'm like, that word just really resonates with me. So I love that you are tackling this. Um, what do you feel like is the difference, which you, you already kind of hit on this. So I don't know that if you have anything more to say about it, but what would be the main differences that you see between that verbiage Christian versus saints? Yeah, I, I would say the big one is what I hit on earlier is saints see themselves as something as a part of something bigger. Mm-hmm. When when you look at when you look at Jesus's message, he tells us, look, like, in, for instance, Luke nine, if you want to find life, if you want to find the life that you crave, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that eternity was written on our hearts. So every single one of us, we desire more of life. That's why our world sells us these ideas of the good life at the altars of sex, stuff and status. It's because we all crave something more. And Jesus, what he says, look, if you want to find the life that you crave, find the life you were meant for, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so what a saint does is a saint is someone who is disruptive. Mm. We think of, we think of saints as like goody two shoes, but saints are not goody two shoes. Saints are disruptive. They play by a different set of rules. They are are in a sense people who belong to a greater kingdom so they don't submit themselves or subject themselves to the kingdom of this world and if you look at passages like psalm 145 and daniel 7 you see this idea that saints are people who wake up in this moment by practicing participating in the mystery of the final day and that is the kingdom of god so that is when god's sovereign rule invades our time changes everything and if you look at jesus's life what was his favorite subject what did he talk about more than anything else? He talked about the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That was his favorite topic. So saints are people who are so in tune with the kingdom of God. And it's not just an abstract idea. So when people think of the kingdom of God, they think of an abstract idea. But the reality is the kingdom of God intersects at that, that point of relationship. So first and foremost, God with us. And then God reconciling the world through us as his ambassadors. So to be a saint 
is something that that moves into our everyday lives. It moves into the mundane. It's not it's not one day we'll be a saint. It's no, we're called to be a saint right now, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or a CFO or a mechanic. Wherever we're called to, we're a part of this mission to bring God's kingdom reality into every sphere in every single space. When you look at passages like Isaiah 11, 9 and Habakkuk 2, 14, it says that the, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Saints live in that reality now. They tap into that reality now and they ask themselves, what would this mean for me today to be a part of a mission, to be a part of, of a story that is so much bigger than my individual life? Okay. But also gives purpose to yeah. my individual life, right? Yeah, yeah. You said something that's short and sweet, and I think will set some people free. Saints are disruptive. I love that. Like so much, love that because <laughs> that flips the script on what we've, you know, we've yeah. always viewed. Like you said, I just, I love that. But it's it's disruption for a good cause, you know, for a the kingdom cause. Like that is exciting and that's something i know makes my spirit man rise up and go yes i want to be a part of that that's so good um, well rachel can, can yeah. i point can i point something out real quickly yeah. too? so I, I made i made mention earlier how paul would use this word and paul used it more than anyone in the new testament think about who paul was writing to who was he writing to he was writing to gentiles so he was writing to people who were newly saved he was writing to people who were just figuring out what it means to follow jesus and he was calling them saints. Mm. And so what it is, is it's, it's a destiny. It's an identity that reshapes destiny. So that's what he's saying. It's like, you are saints. And because you are saints, this is going to change everything about your life. And that's how God works. He doesn't see things just as they are. He sees them as they could and they should be. And he loves them all the way along that spectrum. And that's actually how God moves us into everything that he has for us. It's through his love, through his faith, through his hope. And that's what saints do for the world that he calls good. So saints see this world, their everyday lives, the mundane, through, those, through that lens of faith, hope, and love. And unfortunately, we've made what it is to be a Christian. We've made it so small. We've made it into a cultural expression. And really, ever since the 1700s, we've said, hey, secular world, you take arts, you take science, you take industry. We're going to keep in our, our safe little sacred space. We're going to keep our church services and our prayer groups. And what it's done is it's demobilized so much of the body of Christ because they don't see their everyday lives, their Monday through Saturday as an act of worship. Mm. They don't see that. And so there, we have all these people who feel like they don't have a sense of calling, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. But when we lean into what it means to be saints, when we awaken to this sacred identity that God has called all of us into, then we find that this life is so good. It's so meaningful. Each day is full of purpose. I was at Staples recently getting a TSA pre-check done. And I was I was talking with a lady and she asked me, she said, what do you do? And I, and I shared with her what I did. And she just said, she said, man, that's so cool that you do something meaningful. I just work at Staples. Mm. And I looked at her, Rachel, before I even knew what was coming out of my mouth, I said, that's the great lie of human existence. And like, I didn't know this girl, like I had no idea what her background is. I was like, oh man, I'm gonna have to explain what I mean by that. And I, and I just shared with them like, look, what you do today is valuable because you are interacting with people. Like God loves this world because he loves people. Everything that God has ever done, he has done through relationship. And I just started sharing that with her, sharing that vision with her. And she, after I shared for a little bit, she just looked at me and she goes, thank you. She goes, I've never 
I've never viewed my life like that. I've never viewed myself like that. You just made my week. And, and so I think there's a lot of people like her who view their life as just, man, I'm just doing this or I'm just doing that. I'm just filling time until one day I die and go to heaven. And they're missing out on the purpose that God has for them here and now. You just definitely broke some lies off of people listening today, because I know especially stay-at-home moms and different, you know, people can absolutely just feel like, you know, if I don't have this huge platform or if I'm not out doing something grand and big and and whatnot, then I'm not making an impact on our world. Yeah, and and you know, the enemy of our soul is so good about that. So what he does is he says, look, maybe one day you'll make a difference. Maybe one day when X, Y, Z happens, when you get that degree, when you write that book, when you get that job, after you're done having kids, whatever it is, he always places meaning in the future because he never wants you to discover the significance and the opportunity of the present. So if he if he can under, if he could steal your present, he could undermine your future. Mm. So that that's how, so he's always going after the present. Yeah. And how, how does he do that? By through those lies. Hey, today really really doesn't matter. And that keeps us from seeing the opportunity that God has placed before us today with the people that are in our lives today. If he can steal your present, he undermines your future. That's re- that was worth repeating. That's really good. We've kind of tiptoed around this topic and you you admitted it earlier. And so I'll just go ahead and jump on and admit it with you that sometimes it is challenging to identify or has been as a Christian just because that name in particular gets a bad rap. Where do you think that that bad rap comes from and what we can do to redeem the way Christians have been viewed? <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I'm sure you've heard this expression. More and more people are referring to our world as a post-Christian world. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like people are saying, look, we tried that whole Christianity thing. It didn't work. So now we're moving on to DIY spirituality or secularism or something different. And, And so, Rachel, the truth is blame can be found on every side, right? Like there, the, the world in many senses, um, doesn't like what we stand for. And so a part of it is that, but then there's also, and this is, this is the part I want to focus on. Like, what have we done as followers of Jesus? What have we done to malign the name of Jesus? It says, and I think it's Romans 2.24, that the, the, the world maligns the name of God because of your hypocrisy. So where have we been hypocritical at, as a church? And if you Google, if you just like Google the phrase Christians are, you're going to find words like hypocritical, judgmental, hateful, uneducated. And when I look at the life of Jesus, I just, I don't see that in his life. I see someone who the world was very attracted to. Now, did he speak the truth? Yes. Did he challenge their status quo? Yes. But the world was very attracted to him. When I look at Jesus, I see someone who wasn't hateful, who wasn't judgmental, who wasn't hypocritical. And if we are going to follow Jesus, if we're going to learn his ways, then, then I think we do have to take an honest look at at the life that we've been okay with living, the life that we've been okay with modeling. And and when we when we move beyond the confines of our small self, like this idea that Christianity is all about me and my ticket into heaven and my salvation, we start to realize that salvation, while it does go through us, it's really for a world that's so much bigger than us. And until we start to see it like that, we're going to be okay with the world around us not seeing Christ in us, because all we're concerned about is the fact that, hey, one day I'm going to go to heaven when I die, which is such a small vision, which is small, such a small picture of what it means to be the people of God in the here and now. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like this is such a a broad topic. And, and like you said, there's so many angles you could come at it from. So obviously we're not going to come at it from all the angles today that would, we'd be here for the next, I don't know, you know, 24 hours at least talking about all the angles. So yeah, but I think that one thing that has been hard for me is that I see the swing between grace versus, you know, feeling like, oh, I need to point out everybody's sin and, and all the things. Yeah. And, and so something that has been just really big on my heart is I want, I want people to know that as a believer, that they can tell me things and I still love them, you know, and I do think there's a difference there in, in highlighting, again, there's just, there's just too much that we could, we could talk about here. So let's, on that topic of grace, let's transition because I'm like, we're not going to hang out here all day. What do you feel like then grace? What role does it play in our lives as saints? Yeah. Well, I mean, grace is everything. And, and people, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, but I've, I've heard people say hyper grace. Like there's, there's too many, too many teachings on grace. And I, and I would say, no, you actually can't exhaust the depths of grace because grace emanates from the infinite person of God. So I I don't think we've had too much teaching on grace. I actually think we've undersold grace. Mm. I think we've turned, turned grace into just a ticket into the afterlife instead of realizing that grace is something that transforms every part of our being here and now. Grace is in in a sense, the infusion of God's divine nature. As it says in 2 Peter 1, we have become partakers of the divine nature. So grace makes possible in our lives what otherwise would be completely and utterly impossible. And uh, there's a chapter There's a chapter in this book, it's called Into Fear. The term into fear, it actually, I'm, I'm using the Latin intimir, which is where we get our word intimacy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so intimir, into fear, and it's where we get our word intimacy. So intimacy is the great dive into fear. There's nothing more scary than being known as we truly are. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is like God knows the deepest and ugliest and darkest parts of who they are. And yet he calls them lovely. And yet he was intimate in the forming of their person. And so what, what grace does is grace is this, this thing that, that connects us back to the heart of God so that we can start to see ourselves and start to see Him the way He truly is. Grace gives us eyes to see what we otherwise couldn't see. And so for me, again, like I, 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 don't, think, I don't think we've even tapped into the wonders of grace. I, I think if anything, we've, we've played in, in the shallows. And if you, look at, if you look at what Scripture says, it says God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. That's James 4 and 1 Peter 5. How does he oppose the proud? He opposed the proud by withholding his grace. Mm. And so grace is something that in our lives, like when we humble ourselves, we're like, God, I don't understand why you view me the way you do. I don't understand why you can see these things in me. I don't understand how you can call me a saint. When we humble ourselves and we say, but God, your opinion, it matters most. Then all of a sudden his grace comes into our lives and it changes everything and it positions us to, to become the people that he says we are. Oh, so good. I agree with you 100% about grace that I feel like that if we really, really understood the depths of it, that our lives would just be radically transformed and especially our relationship with the Lord. You know, as you were speaking just now, this was, I, don't, I did not have this planned, but I think the Holy Spirit is leading me in this direction. I'm, I'm watching you talk and I love the voice that you are in our generation, especially to the men. So one of the recurring themes that I hear from women, because most of my ministry is with women, I hear this recurring theme of they 
want to do more things um, when it comes to their, you know, I hate to use the word religion. I don't like that word. But as a saint, they would like to rise up and, and do things, but they feel like sometimes their husband is a bit passive. And so this word passive over men, I feel like is just a recurring theme that I hear. And there's something in my spirit that I'm like, I just... I want an awakening of the men. I want an awakening of everybody, of course. But you being a man, I feel like you can really speak to men on this topic of awakening and being a spiritual leader in this way. So I don't even know what my question is in this other than you're like, what are you getting to, Rachel? What are you talking about over there? I'm just I'm just rambling, yammering on over here. Um, no, but I just feel like you have an anointing on you to speak into the men. So even if the, they're not necessarily listening today, I want that even the women who are sitting under the sound of our voice to receive what it is that you want to speak out over the men of our generation. Are there any words you want to say to all of that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a great question. And, and so I, there's a chapter in this book, it's called God's love language. And, and I talk about how faith is God's love language. God is love. So, so he has to have a way that he expresses that love. And if, if we look at scripture, every time we read the word faithful, what we're really reading is full of faith. So the word faithful originally meant full of faith in the way that like wonderful means full of wonder. And there's something so powerful when you see someone not just as they are, but as they could be and they should be. And you speak to that. There's something that's so powerful that happens in people's lives. And so I would tell for, for the wives listening out there, like, man, I've. I've been on my husband's case about stepping into his his role as a man of God in our home, of really pursuing God alongside me, of, of believing God for a vision for our family, all of those things, right? The the temptation is is to go after him and point out the things that he's not doing. What I would challenge your listeners to do is to start prophesying mm. the way God sees your husband. Yeah. Start start speaking that over him, even even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's contradicting what you see in the present. What does it say in Hebrews eleven one that faith is what the, the conviction, right? And the assurance is the conviction of things hoped for, the evidence or the assurance of things not seen. So what are you doing? You are you are evoking the power of faith when you are speaking over your husband, when you are declaring things that. But that might not be the case right now, but it will be the case. And and that creates a tension in his life that is greater than any tension that you can create just by complaining or pointing out his faults, pointing out his weaknesses, pointing out his failures. When you start speaking the truth of God's word over him, especially like in front of your family, and I'm not talking about in a sarcastic way. I'm like, first you have to get a conviction. Like, don't do this until you really believe it. Don't do it until you have a vision. For how God sees them. So like that's what you got to do first. You got to get in the word, get on your face before God and be like, God, give me a vision for my husband. And then from that place of vision, you'll be able to speak words of faith and that faith will create change in your husband's life. So that's, that's what I, that's what I would recommend to your listeners. Uh I think that's, I think, I think it's such a beautiful way how God works in our lives. I mean, just think about what he does. He calls us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He says that we're seated with him in heavenly places. See, did. That's a that's a present tense. That's Ephesians 2. So God doesn't just call things as they are. He calls them as they could be, as they should be. And if we are going to be people of God, 
if we're going to be saints, people who what merge the worlds of what is and what will be. That's what saints do. They merge the worlds of what is and what will be by partnering with the power of God's Spirit who transcends time. Since God's Spirit transcends time, by the power of God's Spirit, we can see into the future. We can see those promises. We can align our hearts and our words with God's promises, and we can speak those promises into the present, thus merging the worlds of what is and what will be. That's what it is to be people of God. When you look at Hebrews 11, so getting into that list of greats of the faith, what was the one thing that they all had in common? You find a prostitute on that list. You find kings on that list. You find vagabonds on that list. You find quite an array of people on that list, but they had all had one thing in common. They could see the unseen. Mm. They could see the unseen. And because they could see the unseen, they were catalytic. And the I think it's verse 34 describes them as people the world wasn't worthy of. And because the world wasn't worthy of them, they were exactly what the world needed. See, the world doesn't need a bunch of people that are like the world. The world needs people that are catalysts for change, people that have a heart for the world. Not just people who stand aloof on the sidelines, picking up stones, waiting to throw those at the world. And I'm just telling your listeners, your husband might feel like that's what you're doing. You're standing on the sideline. You're collecting your stones. Each and everything that he does wrong, you're just picking up a stone. You're getting ready to throw that stone. You need to be someone who gets into that relationship. You are someone who, in a sense, like your husband isn't worthy of in this moment. But because, because your husband isn't worthy of you, you are exactly what your husband needs. And when you speak and operate from that place of faith, you are going to see change in his life. Oh, that's so good. I love how powerful that is because honestly, that principle can be applied to any relationship in your life. You know, I mean, obviously with your husband or with your kids or maybe your boss at work, I don't know, but you know, to, to get in the word and say, God, help me to see this person, how you see them, help me to see the potential and the, everything that you have placed within them. And then give me some words, you know, to pray over and speak over this person. And like you said, maybe it's too, you know, you know, face to face with them. Sometimes it might just be in our prayer closet of just speaking life over that person and all the things that God shows you. So that is, that's really powerful. And can you imagine if we all did that for each other? You know, I know I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't had men and women of the faith do that to me, you know, speak speak things over me before I could see them, you know, before I could, you know, before it came into existence. Even now I have prophetic words people have given me that I'm, I'm like, wow, okay, well, that yeah all right let's do it you know i mean it's they're mind-blowing and to me that's how you know it's a prophetic word is when it's something that can only come to pass if god himself like opens the doors of heaven and like make you know makes it come to pass and and does this transformation that only he can do and then guess what he gets credit yay and then more people are drawn to you know i've said this before i think i actually said this when i interviewed your mom i said you know anybody who thinks that this faith is um boring or that god's boring or lame in any way (laughs) i'm like you don't have a real relationship with him because he is he's so fun in the way he makes things come to pass and, and the things that the journey uh, that you'll get to go on um, as we're following him as believers. So I love that you spoke to that. Okay, so as we start to wrap up, I would love to know what is your just overall hope for people who read saints? Like if you could just say, man, if, if somebody read this book and they walked away really knowing this, you know, this would just bless my socks off. <laughs> yeah, right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the first chapter and the last chapter. Okay. So the first chapter is called The Good Life. And I want people to discover that the good life, it's not something you find. 
It's not something you earn. It's someone you become. That is the good life. It's someone you become. And this, this journey of becoming, it's synonymous with what it is to be a saint. So that's like, if people can leave with that and they realize, as it says in first John two, like the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's what we're all chasing in a sense. Sucks, sex, stuff, and status. The big three. I like the S's because it's alliteration. It's easy to remember. Sex, stuff, and status. That is what our world is chasing. Our world's telling us, hey, if you get the magical elixir of those three things right, you're going to find the good life. You're going to flourish. It's just not true. Now, are those three things in and of themselves great gifts of life? Yes. Sex in its right context is beautiful. Stuff, I'm very thankful. I'm speaking to you under a roof. Like I'm very thankful that here in cold Colorado, I have a roof over my head. And status is, is significant because it's given for the sake of service. Jesus said, I'm the greatest. And because I'm the greatest, I can do the most noble, the most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most complete act of service because of my status. So those three things aren't bad, but when they become pursuits, the pursuits of our life, they unmake us, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want people to know is that they were made for glory. I want every single person to know that they were made for glory. That's the final chapter of the book is glory. And it's a very different form and type of glory, but we were all made for glory. And that is why we chase some form of glory in this life now is because we were actually made for glory. Mm. And I don't want to, I don't want to go too, I don't, don't want to go too much farther into that. They'll have to read the book and talk about and, and check out what I, what I'm talking about with this idea of glory. But those are the two things, because if people realize who they're created to be and what that means for their world now, they're going to find purpose. They're going to find meaning in whatever season and whatever place they are in now. And that is what Jesus invites us to. Even what Paul says in first Corinthians 15, where he says, I die daily. What he's saying is I die every day to my small, small mindedness. And I wake up with an expectation to see this world, to see the unique world that I'm going to find myself in today through heaven's lens. And, and when we live like that, when we truly live like that, every single moment of every single day is infused with purpose. And that's when people get excited about existence. And there are a lot of people right now who follow Jesus, who are not living with a sense of purpose and a sense of passion. It's because they don't see, they, ha they haven't found those eyes to see the beauty, the mystery and the wonder of life. Oh, so good. Yeah, you guys definitely need to grab his book, Saints. Let me tell you something, how I can always tell when a book is going to be good, even before I've read it, is when you hear the author speak and your answers are not canned. You can tell, you know, like, I mean, obviously, just so you guys know, Addison did not have any of the questions ahead of time today. I do that to my guests on purpose because I want it to be an actual conversation. <laughs> but um, That's smart. Yeah. But also, I just, you know, you can tell when the Holy Spirit is speaking through you. And just like we mentioned at the beginning, you know, um, when a book is God breathed and it's just anointed, the words, it's like they come off the page and they take life and they take form. And, and I even love how when Whenever God is in something, then, you know, it can speak, it can be the same words, but speak to each person differently. You know, that's what's cool to me about the Bible. I'm like, I can read the same verse as you and it does something different in both of us, but yes. it, it does exactly what it was set out to do. That's just really cool to me. So that's awesome. Well, where can people connect with you online and get a copy of your book? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to addisonbevere.com to learn more about saints. They can, they can pick up the book wherever books are sold. And primarily I'm on Instagram. So if they want to connect with me through Instagram, it's just Addison Bevere is the handle. 
Perfect. And we'll have those in the show notes as well, guys. All right. Well, Addison, thank you again for taking time out of your day to come on here and just for speaking life over everybody. I know the listeners going to be very blessed by this conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for what you do and for connecting people with this type of messaging. It's an honor to be on. Didn't you just love Addison's wisdom and his fresh perspective on this topic? His publishing house is giving away three copies to three of y'all. So enter by any of these ways that I'm about to tell you. You can enter by leaving an Apple podcast review, which thank you to those of you who already have. You can share this episode on social media. Just make sure you tag me so that I see it. Or you can get on my email list by texting the phrase Real Talk Giveaway. That's all one phrase to the number 44222 right there on your cell phone. I randomly select those winners for the guest books and just by being on the list, you are entered to win. All right, friends, that's all that we have for today. I pray this episode brought you one step closer to getting real, living free, and pursuing your God-given dreams. I'll see you back here next time on Real Talk with Rachel.